Welcome to Mothering Earth, your source for sustainable living news. I'm Salwa Khan. Did you know that no matter where you live, you can create a wildscape? A wildscape is simply a habitat that provides wildlife with food, water, and shelter. Why create one? So that you and others can enjoy nature close to home and to protect animals, birds, and other wild creatures from being displaced. Wildscapes are a way for each of us to enjoy and preserve the natural world. In this program, you will hear from Kelly Simon, who is an urban wildlife biologist and has literally written the book on wildscapes. So first of all, I'd like to welcome you to Mothering Earth and ask you, as an urban wildlife biologist, what is it you do? Well, as an urban wildlife biologist, my job is really a mix of many different jobs. And so I do work the science uh, side of being a wildlife biologist. We do studies on urban wildlife, how they interact in the urban setting, how they differ from urban to rural settings, what kind of habitat elements are most um, best support a good, healthy urban habitat. But then I also work in um, providing technical guidance to not only to private landowners, but municipalities and councils of government, um, counties, anybody who's interested in learning more about how to make habitat work better in urban settings. And I also do a fair amount of outreach. So we do talking to adults and to children about anything that they're interested about regarding wildlife and nature in the city. And how did you first get interested in this field? What, what sparked that interest? I came into the field as a person who was in love with nature from, the, from childhood, but had grown up in a city. So my, my interactions with nature had been uh, you know, on fishing trips with my father and um, to the Austin Nature and Science Center, because I did grow up some of the time in Austin. Um, a Houston Zoo, and you know all kinds of, t and then my neighborhood as well. So I was a, a child who enjoyed just exploring the natural nooks and crannies of her neighborhood. I really enjoyed that. And so I went to school, and I really enjoyed biology and psychology. And you put those two things together, and what you get is animal behavior. Animal behavior is kind of the combination between psychology and biology. And so from that, I did a an internship where I went to the school for field studies and that was um, a, a, an experience where we looked at the impact of the Exxon Valdez oil, oil spill which had just happened on m marine mammals and so we looked at sea, uh, stellar sea lions and harbor seals. And so uh, we spent, you know, a month and a half in the field. You know, I went there as a wildlife, as an animal behaviorist to, to understand the effects on changes in habitat on behavior. But I came out with an understanding of what it took to be a wildlife biologist, and I just loved it. A lot of the work that you've done, from what I can tell, is about wildscapes. Mm -hmm. So can you talk about what is a wildscape and mm -hmm. why would we want to make one? Sure. So wildscaping is really just a tool that we use, um, and it's the it's kind of the hook that we have to attract people to providing habitat, good viable habitat in whatever setting they are. So if they're in an apartment or a home or a quarter acre or a half acre or, gosh, even an Air Force base, you know, we have a huge range of sizes. But it's just the hook that we have to show people what it takes to create wildlife habitat regardless of where they are. 
Because a lot of times we feel like when we're in a real small, um, we have a small patio garden or we have a quarter acre or we're in the middle of a neighborhood, we think that those habitats aren't very valuable. But it turns out that if we create a little bit of good habitat, and especially if we can convince our neighbors to do the same, um, we can connect habitats together and create larger larger areas that are very valuable to appropriate wildlife species. Um, so wildscaping is just encouraging people to provide appropriate food, water, and shelter for wildlife wherever they are. Um, and it's also for appropriate wildlife. We're not talking about attracting mountain lions. Um, we're also not talking about attracting um, house mice. You know, that we're talking about appropriate wildlife that will allow for a balanced habitat. Okay, so sometimes people wonder what, um, what a wildscape looks like. And a wildscape really just looks like any other landscape. Um, it can be poorly maintained and it can be well maintained, but a good wildscape will include elements that are appropriate for native wildlife. So it'll include native plants. Those native plants provide nectar and uh, flowers and berries and fruit and nuts and leaves and bark and roots and all kinds of things that are valuable for as food sources for different wildlife species. They can also provide a substrate that is a place for th other things to live. So um, native plants will provide um, homes for native bees, for example. Um, native bees will carve holes inside stems and will overwinter in native plants. Um, but they, they don't work so well with non-native plants or plants that are highly cultivated. That's because non-native plants didn't adapt to the species that were here and the climate that was that is here. And so they're just less valuable overall for wildlife species. Cultivated plants were those plant are those plants, they may have been native or not, that were um, that were grown and selected for for characteristics that we as humans like, but not really for the things that wildlife need. So anytime a plant puts energy into a thing, whether it's a big flower or a fancy color or an unusual form, um, it takes energy away from other things that it might be providing. So nectar production might be lower. Um, and in fact, in most cultivars, in most cultivars, the nectar production is quite low yeah. in, in comparison, yeah. They also might be bred to be sterile. You know, uh, those haploid kind of, um, those seedless watermelons, for example, anything that's um, made to be sterile, um, for one thing, is difficult to recultivate, so it's easy for a grower to um, patent and trademark. Um, but it also makes it difficult for the plant to produce seeds and nectar and fruit and pollen. All of those things are reproductive parts, and if they don't reproduce, then there's no reason to produce them, um, to put their energy there. So you asked, you began this by asking, what is a wildscape? So a wildscape is just providing food, water, and shelter wherever you are for appropriate wildlife. You hopefully using native plants and appropriate structures, whether they're ponds or uh, bird baths or, or whatever it is that you want to put in. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm here with Kelly Simon, uh, and we're talking about wildscapes. And uh, you were just talking about what exactly is a wildscape. And I understand that Texas Parks and Wildlife has a formal program about wildscapes. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk about that and what its purpose is? 
Yeah, for many years, Texas Parks and Wildlife uh, supported a program called Texas Wildscapes um, and Best of Texas Wildscapes. And these were certification and education programs. And they were designed to provide, again, education, that is telling people how they might create a wildscape if they wanted to, um, and then providing recognition for those who, who did and provided a um, written documentation of that wildscape. Um, it's an awful lot of fun. People love it. You get a sign. You get a uh, certificate. Uh, people are very proud of their certificates. I have mine <laughs> still. Um, I certainly have mine. And um, we also produced a lot of materials, brochures, uh, booklets, etc., and uh, workshops and videos. Um, related to the program but we also produced a book and this the book was has gone through a couple of iterations now and it was very um, widely received and, and enjoyed by lots of folks the part of the program that was the recognition program we've had to pull back on a little bit recently oh, really? yeah so it was a real um, staff intensive thing so people would send in applicants would send in their applications and they'd be five six seven pages long um, because they're rightfully um, trying to provide an accurate picture of their property um, and it, it just got to be a very very intense program for which we didn't have any more resources than we had previously so like any government program we've always been asked to do more with less and so we we retain the book and we do a lot of education programs um, but we're not able to do the certifications uh, for a while so maybe moving into the 21st century yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and having an electronic submission process yeah. um, will make things will expedite things and make it so that we can do it again you talked about uh, the benefits of a wildscape to wildlife, mm -hmm. but what are the benefits to people? Well, funny you should ask that. So we do talk, I spend an awful lot of time in my program talking about, you know, wildscaping is not just good for wildlife, it's good for people as well. And we um, emphasize that, you know, I mean, there's all kinds of studies out there that tell us how humans adapted to nature and require nature in order to be healthy. And so um, access to nature reduces healing time, reduces uh, pain medication use, it increases focus, it helps children. Well, if you read uh, Richard Liu's Last Child in the Woods, he explains what nature deficit disorder is. It's not a recognized disorder, but it's a group of symptoms that children frequently experience when they're prevented from um, accessing nature. It's great to go out to Enchanted Rock State Park or Guadalupe River State Park or any of the other fabulous state parks that we have, or even city parks. But those are kind of once a season kind of trips. And when we have a wildscape, we have the opportunity for a child to experience nature every single day. Every time they drive home, they, they come home from school, exit the car, they look at the garden, and there are butterflies in it. Maybe also they've got a window that can abut a uh, wildlife garden, and they can ha spend time if they're gazing out the window, maybe not just daydreaming about you know, television or YouTube, but maybe also staring at the butterflies and staring at the ants and, 
asking questions about the hummingbirds that visit and asking questions about, was that actually a lizard I saw? You know, all those wonderful things that can stimulate curiosity and wonder in the world. And speaking of wonder, um, we have a, a tendency in today's world of spending a whole lot of time in front of two-dimensional objects, that is, our screens. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, children on average spend about seven hours every day on a screen. I thought that wow. was amazing and yeah. probably wrong. And I thought my ch my children, of all children, right, are probably not doing that. So I looked at their screen um, diaries. You know, they, you, you have the ability to look at their screen oh, time. Yeah, five hours. <laughs> My children are spending on screens. And when we do that, we lose some skills, and among them are math and science skills. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan, and I'm here today with Kelly Simon, and we're talking about uh, wildscapes, but right now it's time for a break. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm here today with Kelly Simon, who is an urban wildlife biologist with Texas Parks and Wildlife. And we're talking about uh, wildscapes. Um, so you were talking about all the benefits that accrue to people who might mm -hmm. create a, a wildscape. Um, but how would somebody go about creating a wildscape? Is there, you know, like what are the steps mm -hmm. that can kind of lead us through that <laughs> process. Absolutely. Well, we do whole workshops on how to get started with wildscaping, but it's really very simple. It's just making the decision that the, that the next decisions that you will make in your garden will be for the benefit of wildlife as well as humans. And that's um, not as daunting as it might seem. So um, sometimes we think of these large, grand projects, but really it could be as simple as deciding that maybe you didn't want to put a bird feeder up, you wanted to have a, a seed producing or a fruit producing plant providing for food for birds. It might be deciding that uh, you'd like to install a butterfly garden and look up the types of flowers and other plants that would be beneficial to butterflies. So the elements of a wildscape are simply food, water, and shelter. And so what you do first is take an, take an uh, stock of your area. So you take inventory right. um, and look at the plants that you already have, the structures that you already have, the infrastructure that you have, um, and decide m maybe what what your values are uh, in the garden. Do you want to provide uh, habitat for wildlife? Do you want to provide some um, meditation areas? Do you want to provide some play areas? Do you have a dog or um, maybe a cat that comes outdoors sometimes and needs areas as well? Do you have conflicting interests? Do you have a budding soccer player that needs a lot of, you know, low-mode low, low mode grass? And that's something to consider. Yeah. So these, the, the ideas and concepts of wildscapes are not to displace humans. It's to integrate wildlife and humans together um, into one habitat or into complementary habitats. Um, so what I usually do when we start a workshop is have people think about what their values are in the garden. So do you want to have a native landscape? Do you want to have areas for the dogs and cats to play? Do you want to have um, areas for children to, to, to play also? Um, and incorporating not just maybe reconsidering what that means, what play means for the outside. Maybe it does meet some, some areas that the child 
practices ball handling skills, you know, for example. Right. But it could also be areas where children have areas to explore and to have what's called free play, which we understand is very important and is critical for development of um, realization of self-modification strategies. Those are the strategies that children have to modify their own behavior, and they develop those through years and years of uh, unstructured play, usually. Um, and that can happen in the outside. Okay, so how do you get started? So you've understood your, your ideals, you've taken inventory, and then you might decide on how, uh, on paper, how things might change. So I encourage people to map out um, starting from their house and working their way out if they want to, or, or just picking some direction and working their way to the opposite direction. Um, and, and put in large bubbles, not plants, but bubbles that tell people that where people can record their ideas for the area. So for example, um, I might map out my home and my garden and I might put in the trees that are existing there, the grasses are there. I might also put in problem areas like um, this area always seems to die, this area is always hot, this area is always wet, you know, problem areas as right. well. And also things like viewscapes. I might map area, map an area that I really want to be able to sit and look and view something beautiful. You know, take into account those things too. So map it out and then map out things like, well, if I want a meditation area, what's compatible with that that's wildlife friendly? Well, golly, um, you know, a butterfly area would be compatible with that. Maybe a, um, a shade garden would be compatible with that. Shade gardens are great for birds. Birds are good for meditation. <laughs> you know, that works out very well too. Um, so mark out just in large bubbles, not individual plants, but large bubbles of what kinds of things you would like to see. Yeah. And once you understand the functionality and the overlapping uses, then you can start deciding what types of plants might fulfill these functions. Um, so if I'm thinking about, okay, I've got a meditation area, I'm thinking maybe butterflies would be really good because they're low plants and um, it's very calming, I'd like to be able to see that. Then, then I might say, okay, what kinds of native plants are good for a shady, because you're in the shade, because it's a meditation area, a shady butterfly garden? They're going to be completely different than the plants that would be appropriate for a sunshine butterfly garden, right? Or they're going to be different than a bird garden would be, or, or whatever. Or even a, um, a bee garden, right? A garden that's appropriate for native bees. Most of, most of which are solitary and few of which will ever sting you. So um, um, anyway, so, the, so you start by then filling in those big ovals, big shapes with things that you might actually install. Um, and then it's time to bring the whole, you want to be sure to involve the whole family or all the occupants of the area um, at all stages of the process because you don't want to get far down the line and have um, a family member say, hey, wait a minute, I really always envisioned, you know, having a hot tub there <laughs> or, <laughs> or something. Uh, so be sure to involve the entire family in the process so that you get um, a, a harmonious, as, as, as harmonious as you can get, um, execution of your plan and then comes the really fun part because then you get to schedule your native plant um, sale visits right <laughs> <laughs> so there's native plant nurseries in the area we're really lucky to have many in the area that are really 
a high degree of high quality native species. But if you just can't find the species that you're looking for, you might also consider going to the Lady Bird Johnson twice annual wildflower sale or wild plants, native plant sale. And, and when are those? Those are in the fall and in the spring. And they're a ton of fun. That's where you get to meet all the native plant enthusiasts of the Central yeah. Texas area. <laughs> and which is very valuable because then you can find out information about the plants, you know, like oh, yeah. will they do well in shade or in sun? Or, yeah, or, they have docents that are volunteering. They can provide you with lots of information. Employees are also spending time there um, providing information of them, interpretive information on how they grow what kind of soils they need, um, et cetera, and what kind of wildlife benefits. Some, some people do know those as well. And then there's also volunteers from the different native plant societies that are throughout the central Texas, actually the entire Texas area. Um, we also have vendors come in. There's some, some seed companies that come in. They're extremely knowledgeable about how to, how to do native plantings, um, especially large-scale large restoration plantings, so, um, and, and small-scale as well, too. Yeah. So one of the things that um, always uh, sort of can befuddle me is when I'm looking at a plant and it says part shade or <laughs> part sun or things that, you know, you're not quite sure, well, you know, how much, how much sun is that or how yeah. much shade is that? What can you help by kind of explaining those terms? Uh, you know, so I came into the, the uh, came into the profession from the wildlife side. So there are some pretty specific definitions to part sh sun and part shade. I, I can't remember the number of hours, I apologize, but uh, you're very like my husband who says, but does, do we have part shade? And I'm, I don't know, you know. Um, I really go on a more, uh, it's a, more of a subjective kind of thing. I feel like if they, if they, if this plant requires eight hours of sun, usually it will say that. For example, yeah. buffalo grass, it requires eight hours of sun per day. Um, and, and the tags in a reputable place will say something along those lines. But if it says part sun, part shade, what I understand that to be is a very subjective um, estimation of yeah. how much sun it is. Dappled sun means, or dappled shade usually means it's got shade most of the day, but it gets little pockets of sunshine, yeah. right? Um, full full shade means it's full, of yeah. course. It's it's 100% yeah. shade or mostly shade. Um, th but there's a little bit of wiggle room. So for example, something that um, really likes shade, so it says like, part shade, doubled shade, you know, mm -hmm. full shade. Sometimes you can, can get away with a little bit of sun if it's the early early morning um, hours. Where it's not too hot. Right, so, so you're gonna um, hedge your bets on that side. Um, yeah, usually the most advantageous quality is listed first. So if it's got three different qualities, but part shade is listed first, it, it'll err on the side of right. full, you know, that, of that quality. Right. So um, when you're going about creating your wildscape, does it matter where you live to begin with? How much of a, a sort of native area that you're in, or I don't know if that's the right term. Yeah, well, so um, where you live, uh, where your habitat is gonna be, is certainly going to dictate what types of plants are gonna do very well there. And it may, may be that you, you choose very generalistic Texas plants or you go very specific. So it kind of depends on whether, um, on what kind of natives you select for your garden. 
the plants are a little bit like people. They are some of them are um, really picky and very specific about their needs, and some can do pretty well just about anywhere. Um, you don't want to choose a plant, however, that does pretty well anywhere over the world, because those kind of plants can become very invasive, and they'll displace native plants that need a little bit more specific habitats. So you want to be careful about. So um, I live in Bastrop, and you might remember that Bastrop had a really severe fire up, uh, in 2011, and so we were revegetating an awful lot of land in a very quick time period because it was fall, the rains were coming, it was going to wash away all of our remaining land, and and of course we wanted our our habitat back, and so our. Our solution was to not ever plant anything as aggressive as Bermuda grass, for example, or KR bluestem, which we would never get rid of. Um, but find some of our native um, colonizer species. <laughs> so those things are something a little bit more generalistic. Um, green spangle top grass was the one was a big one that we chose, and then also. Uh, and mix that seed with some more long-term seed, like little blue stem or things that are a little bit um, harder to get started, but on long-term, a healthier plant um, or healthier habitat. So you can emulate that in your garden as well. If you're desperate to get something in the ground, maybe you just built and they have um, denuded the landscape in order to build or something like that. Um, you can choose buffalo, I mean, uh, Bermuda grass, but you will never get rid of it. So uh, choose wisely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you might decide to choose something that's a little bit less aggressive, but still more generalistic in a native sense um, and, and have some natural succession go on. There's more to come on Wildscapes. In our next program, we'll learn what you can do to attract birds to your wildscape. Please tell people you know about this podcast, and thanks for listening. Until next time, this is Salwa Khan signing off for Mothering Earth, your source for sustainable living news.